In this passage, we really see a few admonitions in regards to God's work of working in us in regards to growing, standing, and discerning. Really, is the three primary areas we see in this section that Paul covers here in the book of Philippians with the objectives at the end of the passage of being sincere without blame and fruitful in order to glorify God. And so there's kind of a small passage here as Paul, last time we saw, expressed his love for the believers at Philippi, his concern for them, and here he begins to express his desire for them, which is really the desire of God in their lives. And it begins here in verse 6, this wonderful verse, something we can be confident of, that God is at work in our lives faithfully. We see here that it is, first of all, his work. It's his work to change us. And that's a glorious thing because we find we have no strength in the flesh. The Bible tells us that. We discover that. And we change very slowly and very difficultly. But when we, when we yield ourselves to the work of God that is at work in us, God is the one who produces that change. It is his work. It doesn't mean that we are sloppy and indifferent because God changes us through the teaching of the word of God and the power of the spirit of God to make those truths of God's eternal word real in our lives. But it is his work and we, we can be thankful for that. And that's why when we, whether I preach or you teach or we share in a Bible study, we recognize that our objective is not to change people. Our objective is to teach God's delightful word. And we know that in the hands of the Spirit of God, he takes and he makes the changes. He is faithful to that task. That's what this verse is all about. We're told in 2 Corinthians 3.18 that as we behold him in the mirror of the word of God, we're changed into that same image. By the Spirit of God. That's His work in our lives. It's a work that God is faithful to do. It is a work we must cooperate with. But it is a work He is doing, and if we aren't cooperating with Him, His work changes from one of teaching to one of discipline, does it not? To help us to be willing, to help us to take our medicine and see what's good for us, so to speak. But the point is, it is His work, and He is faithful to it. He is faithful. It is something He does for us in spite of ourselves. There's a work he is doing, and so we sing that song, you know, he's still working on me to make me what I ought to be, and so on. That's what is going on in our lives as we read his word, as we spend time in his word, and that's why when we starve ourselves of his word as Christians, our growth is stunted. The work is, 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 comes to a slow crawl. We need to be in the word of God, don't we, in, in, our, in our personal lives, to, in order to allow God to accomplish his work. It's a lifelong work. That means it's never done, and here, while we're here on earth, but it will be completed at the day of Christ. When we go to be with the Lord, he will complete that work of making us Christ-like. And that's what the work is. Galatians 4.19, Paul says this, My little children for whom I labor in birth again until Christ is formed in you. You know, that really describes for us the beauty of the Christian life. It's a relationship with Christ, who is our life according to the book of Colossians. And Paul says later in chapter 1, verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ, and, God, and God's objective, his work, is forming Christ in us because we share in his life. That's Christianity. It's more than just a Sunday go to meet and, being, being a Sunday go to meet and Christian, keeping a few commandments. It, it is about sharing in the life of Christ and allowing his person to be formed in us. And that's why the verse I mentioned in Ephesians 4.15, we speak the tru truth in love, we may grow up in, in all things into him. We're growing up into him. We're becoming like him in our lives. That's God's primary objective. Well, here we find some other supporting objectives in this passage as well. At the end of this passage, 
we see here, after a discernment that approves excellent things in our lives, the objective is, is sincerity, it's to be blameless or without offense, and it is to be filled with the fruits of righteousness. These are things that God is doing as part of his work, is first of all, to make us sincere, that you may be sincere. Well, the word sincerity really means, uses, uh, means to be pure. And some of your versions may choose to use that word, pure. The definition of the word means to be unmixed, without alloy. And it reminds me of that prayer in Ephesians 3 where Paul says that we might be filled with the fullness of God. Because we're going to be filled with something in our lives, aren't we? We're going to be filled with self or this world, or self's love for this world, or we're going to be filled with the fullness of God. And that's, and that's what sincerity is. It's just really, some people like to use the term being real. Being, being real about our faith and allowing God to work in us to rid us of those things that pollute the cause of Christ, the person of Christ, things that are not of Christ. And so this not only per, per, points to the quality of our lives, the purity that God is seeking to object, uh, accomplish, excuse me, but he's speaking to our attitudes of sincerity. Are we serious about this work of God to produce Christ in us? And that's an amazing thing. You know, it's, it's, it's nothing that a legalistic approach to, you know, don't drink, smoke, swear, chew is ever going to accomplish. Only God can produce the Christ life in us as he teaches us the, the wonder of the beauty of the holy principles of the word of God in our lives. But are we cooperating? Are we sincere about a walk with Christ, about being like Christ, about pursuing Christ, about seeking Christ? in order that God might begin to produce a Christ-like life in us. So we ask ourselves, do we want to be real or do we want to be religious? Do we want to live to appease our consciences or do we want to live to please God? Is, pursuit, is the pursuit of Jesus a real pursuit in our lives or are we just playing games? Or does the world then see Christ in us? What do they see when they see us? Does the world know the love of Christ because they see the love of Jesus through us and amongst us. That's what God says are the indicators of the reality of, the, of Christ within, things that should be normal, really, to the Christian walk, should it not? But too often, we're just a, too many churches are, are just doing the Christian thing on Sunday morning, and Christ never becomes real. We never consume the teaching and embracing the teaching we've learned. Another question we have to ask, are we impacting our community for Christ? If we're real, sincere, being purified, being made Christ-like, then people will hear the love of Christ, the gospel. We'll be motivated to witness. Some will get saved. Others will be helped or served. <coughs> Folks will experience what real compassion and, and concern is like. And people will recognize reality because they're impacted by it. Churches in this community should impact the culture. And many have pointed out that because our culture is, is turning to such a, in a godless direction, it's because the church has lost its light and no longer making an impact for the culture. Instead, we're trying to fit in too often. Well, God's object objective is that we become pure, we're sincere, we're true to our faith in Christ and the person of Christ, which will always produce a countercultural lifestyle when we prioritize him. It'll produce a real lifestyle when we experience real love, real compassion, real righteousness, and so on. 
and the world around us will be impacted by it. The second thing he mentions here, then, is that you might be sincere without offense. Once again, some of your versions may use the word blameless. That's the idea. That same word is used in Acts 24 and verse 16 saying this. It says, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense towards God and men. So here the writer expands it to, to without offense or being blameless before God and men. When you think about it, that's like, wow, nothing offensive in my life before God. That's what God's sh shooting for. That's what God's working towards, isn't it? And when we think about it, there's only one person that ever lived it, isn't there? The one we worship today in the Lord's table, our Lord Jesus Christ, lived that perfect life. That's why he was qualified to be our Savior, wasn't he? He was the only blameless one, but God is trying to form Christ in us so that we are like him and we can reflect that. God never accepts excuses that Christians too often make for our flaws. Oh, it's the way I was raised. It's my parents' fault. You know, we're all, we're all, we're all victims of something, you know. And, and we always have something to blame for our behavior or some excuse. Too much Kool-Aid, whatever the case is. God doesn't accept those things. Now, he understands we're dust, we're told in the Psalms. He knows our frame, but that doesn't mean he accepts it. It doesn't mean he wants, doesn't want to change it. And he's faithful to that, to help us to be void of offense towards God. And that covers both our external behaviors and our internal attitudes, our thought patterns and priorities and all those things. And when we're really honest with this, we might say, boy, I've got a long ways to go. But Paul said the same thing. In, later in Philippians, they're going to say, he says, I haven't attained. I've got a long ways to go. Now I'm going to forget my past failures. I'm going to press towards what's before, but I've got a long ways to go. And you know, and that's a start. If we're even willing to sit still long enough before God and evaluate our lives and thinking, boy, I fall short. That's honesty. That's recognition. And that's where it begins. That's when God can then begin to change us because then he shows us a better way, the right way, the Christ way, the way of holiness and sanctification. And so on the heels of recognition then must come willingness. And say, okay, okay God, I'm yours. And that's what it takes is surrender to the, to the hand of the, of the potter to mold us and say, Lord, you know, make me what you want, want me to be. And that can be risky to our flesh from our flesh's perspective as God may want to make changes in our lives in areas we don't want to change, things we don't want to give up. Maybe traditions that we've always held. James 1, 22 and 23 says this, these well-known verses, be doers of the word and not hearers only deceiving your own selves. And that often happens. You know, we hear the word we don't really do the word. And the Bible says when that happens, you're, you're deceived. And he explains that in the following verses. He says, for if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he's like a man who looks in the mirror, he observes himself, he goes away and forgets what kind of man he was. He forgets his hair wasn't combed and he wasn't shaved and had food in his teeth. He forgets and he just goes his way. Doesn't do anything about it. And that's Christians. They hear the word of God. They like the word of God. They enjoy a message. But then Monday comes, and there's still food in their teeth. None, know nothing about it. They aren't doers of the word. It goes on to say, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty, that's the Bible, and continues in it, remembers on Monday morning what he learned and was taught, remembers later in the day what he read in his devotions or the passage he memorized. 
He's not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. This will be blessed in what he does. You know, deception is rampant, by the way. We talked a little bit this past week at Bible camp. It's on my mind. And I asked the young people a question because Satan's objective is to deceive. And it mentions being deceived. It mentions being self-deceived here. Is how do you know when you're deceived? It's kind of one of those questions. You don't. But we have a faithful father who will show us, who will reveal to us. That's his job. That's part of his faithful work to show us that, you know, this thinking that you've embraced for all these years is flawed. It's not based on the truth of God's word. It's not honoring to God. It's a polluted part of your life that needs to go. God is faithful to it. And one of the ways to prevent self-deception is to be a doer of the word. This is preventative medicine here. You want to keep from the destruction of, of self-deception be a doer. Take what you've learned and seek in prayer and, and earnest seeking of God to f- make it real in your life. Because self-deception brings nothing but destruction. Oh, you might think, oh, it can't be that bad. Well, look around us. Why do you think the world embraces the craziness it embraces? They're self-deceived. We don't see when we're dece- deceived, but we turn to truth, the truth of God's word. God's light of his word lights up the darkness in our lives. And so we are to be blameless before God, and we do that by being doers of the word that he teaches us and saying, okay, God, you're right. You know, I'm, I'm really messed up. Help me to make that change. Help me to have the right attitude, the right perspective, the right priority, the right passion, or whatever it might be in our lives. Help me to be a doer of the word. But also tells us nothing to have to be blameless before men. There's another whole animal, isn't there? And there's only one way that can happen, and that's through Jesus Christ. That's what it says at the end of verse 11. It's through Christ living in me that I can present a lifestyle that is blameless before men. Now, you might be thinking, well, I'm not living to please men. I'm not a man pleaser. That's not what I have to do. And you're right. We live to please God. We live to honor God. We don't answer to man. We don't walk by his rules, by his demands, by his dictates. We walk according to God's truth. But we do live to affect them. We do live to love them, to serve them, to attract them to Jesus Christ. And an offensive life does just the opposite, doesn't it? It drives them away. You've all heard it. Why should I be cut? Why would I want to be a Christian? Do you know this person? Or because of this person? This aunt, this uncle, this friend, this co-worker. He says he's a Christian and look at them. That's offense towards man. And the Bible says that God's working to help us to not be offensive, to not hurt the cause of Christ, to not drive people away from the things of God. That's his work he's doing in us. And I would say this, if we work at not being blameless before God, or being blameless, there's a double negative, sorry, being blameless before God, then we will probably be blameless before men, will we not? The next thing he says, this objective that's mentioned in this portion at least, is being filled with the fruits of righteousness. Filled with the fruits of righteousness. Well, righteousness is a big word, but it's a simple word. It simply means right, doing right, being right. But we know the right right is God's right. It's according to God's truth. It is God's holiness. It is God's word is what is right. And in reality, this statement complements the previous two. And the reason I say that is because this being filled in verse 11 is in the passive, which means... It's something that's done to you. And it could read, having been filled. 
That means this is ascribing a person that is submitting to the work of God that he's working in us, and he has been filled. Having been filled is a part of the normal process of the Christian life, and it indicates that this person or that you and I are cooperating with God and yielding to God in his work of making us a holy life, of, re of ridding ourselves of the pollutants and restoring to us the righteousness, the good stuff, the person of Christ in our lives. Because that's the only way it happens. He says, being filled or having been filled with the fruits of righteousness, which are by Jesus Christ. And that should be normal. As we're filled with his person, we reflect his holiness and his righteousness. And it only happens when we yield to him, when he is real in our lives and we're sincere about our pursuit of him. That is described by the Lord Jesus Christ as abiding in him and he in us in that intimate relationship that you and I are privileged to enjoy. And then we will live as we are. It's only as we live out his teachings, it's only as we, we take the word of God seriously, sincerely in our lives and, and, and examine ourselves in light of them and pray for the application of them and the power of the Spirit of God that we'll be real, that we'll live that Christ-like life. You know, this is really describing the walk of faith, isn't it? Because we're to live by faith. And when it comes to this aspect of living righteously, living holy, sanctified lives, lives that are right before God, it is based on our walk of faith. And faith begins by, first of all, believing something is true. And in most Sunday mornings, in most churches, if you ask the congregation after they heard a message, if the preacher was faithful to the word of God, they say, is what you heard today true? And they will say yes. Right answer. In fact, they might say yes, because like many of us, you hardly remember what we heard an hour ago at church. But we're supposed to say yes, so we will say yes, because the word of God is right. But faith goes beyond that, doesn't it? Beyond mental assent and acknowledgement of what is right. Faith, faith, real faith, biblical faith, embraces those things to be true in one's heart and in one's life. It translates to shoe leather. It's one thing to say after a message, that was a great study. It's another thing on Monday comes to embrace those truths in our lives. Because the word of God is only true, it's true for me. I like to add those two words. Yes, the Bible was true. Yes, the message was good, but is it good for me? Is this good for me? Is it something I'm going to consume? Am I going to partake of? Am I going to live in light of? Because God's work is first teaching, which includes instruction and conviction. We read that in 2 Timothy 3 this morning. But on top of that, God also enables, empowers, gives us the grace to apply those things in everyday life, making it real to us. And that's why in 2 Timothy 3, the inspired word of God is good for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that we might be complete. And that's what God is working at, completeness, Christ-likeness, thoroughly equipped for every good work. You know, today, in the, I believe in the Christian world, there's way too much disconnect in what God is trying to do in our lives. A lot of theory, a lot of theology, but not a lot of application. Not a lot of reality of Christ in us today. And it's important that we follow these simple instructions to allow Christ to be real in us. That's the objective. He is faithfully working on us till the day of Jesus Christ. Well, in between his work of working in us until the day of Christ, the work he's going to complete, and some of the objectives we read about here in the end of this passage, in verses 10 and 11, we find, uh, we find a few marks of a growing believer. Some elements of that growth process. And as you leave verse 6, you find in verse 7 that Paul mentions that these believers were partakers with him of grace. The grace 
that was involved in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. And that's one of the things God's working in our lives. It's one of the things that has to be true of a, a believer that is being developed by Jesus Christ is to participate in gospel work, in the Great Commission, in being an ambassador, being a witness. Take any of those passages, and it's pretty clear in the Scriptures that God wants us to go and win the loss to Christ. And Paul says, commends them, because it's normal part of the growth process to, to be partakers with him of that grace. Now, why does he mention grace in this gospel work? Well, it's because God uses flawed people, is he not? He doesn't use deserving people. He uses undeserving people. He uses sinners. He uses the unlikely. He uses the foolish to confound the wise. God uses the willing, not the qualified. And then he qualifies them. But the willing are always flawed people. That's you and I. It's amazing to think that God can take sinners like you and I who fall so, so far short of the glory of God, but who are still growing in grace to be used to carry on his work of the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Because when we approach it from that perspective, we discover that our sufficiency is of God. Do we not? 2 Corinthians 3, 5, not that we're sufficient of ourselves or think anything of it as of ourselves. Our sufficiency is of God. And so it's of grace because of who God chooses, the unlikely and the unworthy, the undeserving, and he uses us in spite of ourselves. But God, Paul also mentions grace because God supplies all that we need then for the work he calls us to. He doesn't just stick us out here on our own and tells us to go get them and figure it out. It's not like some, one of those you know, wilderness treks where they throw you out in the, in, the, in, the, in the jungle in the middle of the desert with a couple of tools and say, figure it out. No, God in his grace is with us. God in, the grace, in his grace equips us. And for Paul in this moment, the grace he needed was to continue to be a witness while he's in prison. Remember, this is written from prison. And Paul wasn't concerned with just surviving prison. He was concerned about flourishing in prison being all that God had him to be. And God and Paul's, for, so Paul's need for the moment was the grace of God in that damp, dirty, rat-infested prison to continue to be a light for the gospel. And that's what God provides for us in life, in this darkness-infested world we live in, to stand as a light for the gospel. And God's grace will provide the ability, the boldness, a love for souls, the strength, the wisdom, the direction, Protection, and Peter reminds us that he's given us all things that pertain to life and godliness. And so we need that grace. We need to be dependent upon God, but we need to also be involved in the purposes of God, which here is the defense and confirmation of the gospel. Paul maybe put, put these in these maybe somewhat combative terms, as they would, might seem, because he was in prison for his faith. He had been persecuted for his faith, and that's, and that's why he was there. And he was there because he defended and confirmed the gospel. Well, we know the gospel is the message of eternal salvation. That's clear to us. We celebrate that in the Lord's table, the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, the gospel, the gospel that saves because Jesus paid it all on the cross for our sins. It's the only message that saves, and that's the reason we Christians are, are persecuted and opposed because there is only one way. And Jesus says that. He is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by him. But participating in his work, and if Christ is being formed in us, if God is doing that work of making us Christ-like, if he is trying to make us all we ought to be before Christ, and part, then as the person of Christ grips our lives, then his love is going to grip our lives, his purposes are going to direct our lives, and we're, we're going to grow in our cooperation and participation in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. The word defense simply means to stand for its purity and its integrity. We defend the gospel. We stand for its purity and integrity, Confirmation really could be 
interpreted, maybe some of your Bibles call it vindication. It basically, basically means keep it clear. Keep it clear. Keep, the, keep it defined clearly. And that shouldn't be hard to understand, because wherever Paul went, he ran into those who were trying to pollute the gospel. They were trying to add works to salvation. They were trying to encourage people to keep the law, plus believe in Christ, to be saved. And Paul said, sorry, that's just not the gospel message. In his preaching, he was confronting all the false religions and paganism of his world that, is, that was illegitimate and sending people to an to eternal lake of fire. And so the message of the gospel needs to be defended and needs to be confirmed. Which means, shouldn't we, if this is God's work that's going on in the, in the life of the Philippian church, no doubt going on for the centuries that followed right up to this morning, should not we be determined to keep the message that rescues people from eternal damnation clear? It's only too simple. It only makes sense that if eternal souls are at stake, that we want to be sure we had the right message, God's message, the gospel message of salvation by faith alone through Christ alone. But we also may want to do that because it's also respect to our Savior. He gave us all. We celebrate that at the Lord's table. Or we will celebrate at the Lord's table this morning. He bankrupted heaven. This was God's eternal plan from, from eternity past to send his only son to purchase our salvation. And what this respected is to tolerate a perversion to that message, a pollution of that message, or to think that we could add human effort when Jesus says, it is finished, paid in full. And so we have to be careful today to, to go on with Paul and not compromise with those who do not proclaim the gospel of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. When you compromise, when you tolerate that message, we're not fulfilling this admonition to be participating in a defense and confirmation of the gospel. Somehow in life, we've adopted this mentality that the Christian's primary job is to be nice and to be kind. And then somehow people will come to Christ. The answer to that is, of course, we're to be kind and nice. Jesus was a gentle and meek man. And that's the, that's the life he produces in us. We're encouraged through all scripture to, 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 to preach the, the Bible patiently and in love. But God still calls us to stand. God tells us to, to, tells us to proclaim. God calls us to be truth tellers. And when we cooperate with ministries because we want to be nice to them, who deny the gospel, is simply to proclaim a different message by virtue of our actions that I'm okay, you're okay. You might, not, you might deny that, but that's exactly what it says. And being nice to them is allowing them to slip straight into hell if we never stand and preach the gospel. Paul was not in prison because he was nice. And he was nice. He was kind, I'm sure. Fruit of the Spirit, love, joy, peace, and so on. But that's not why he was in prison. Let's go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. Let's look at a couple passages this morning in regards to defending, standing for, and defending the gospel. 2 Timothy chapter 2. It gives us a good balance, I believe, in our approach, a balance God wants us to have in our approach to reaching people for Christ. 2 Timothy 2 verse 24 says, And the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to all. There's the kindness, there's the meekness. Apt to teach, patient. In humility, correcting those who are in opposition, if God perhaps will grant them repentance so that they might know the truth, 
that they might come to their senses and they may escape the snare of the devil having been taken captive by him to do his will. You see, Jesus died to rescue. His plan is a rescue plan. And he wants to rescue soul from eternal damnation. He wants to re rescue lives from the corruption of this evil worldly system we live in. He wants to rescue from hell. He wants to deliver in this present evil world. And that's accomplished as we preach the truth in love. We do it gently. We don't quarrel. We do it patiently. We do it in humility, but we still correct. We correct those. We still stand for truth. We still sometimes have to say, is that what the Bible says? Have you ever considered what the Bible says? This isn't about a debate between you know, them and you or their pastor, your pastor, their church and their church. This is what does God say about them because we're concerned for their eternal souls. And we can nice them right into hell when we, and we fail to tell them about the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we compromise, it gives them the, gives them the impression that what they believe is okay. It's a travesty. It's not what God's called us to. We still must stand and defend the gospel. It may offend. It will offend sometimes. And sometimes we'll be rejected, but the seeds will be planted. Let's go over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. Verse 14 says, but even if 1 Peter 3, 14, if you're not there. But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you are blessed. And do not be afraid of their threats, nor be troubled, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and always be ready to give a defense. There's that word again. To everyone who asks you the reason for the hope that is in you. Defense is an argument, an explanation. With meekness and fear, having a good conscience that when they defame you as evildoers, those who revile your good conduct in Christ may be ashamed. And so sometimes standing for Christ is seen as evil doing by the world. Sometimes drawing a line in the sand, taking a stand for the gospel, the world thinks you're just being a separatist. You're, being, you're trying to make everybody the enemy, and all you're doing, trying to do is gently and, and quietly and firmly preach Christ. And they're going to think it's evil. Expect that. That's normal. It's not enjoyable. It's not what we ask for. But it doesn't happen by just being nice and kind and compromising. It happens when you stand and defend the gospel. Same reason Paul was in prison. Verse 17, it is better if it is the will of God to suffer for good doing than for evil, obviously. Let's jump over as well into here in Peter to... to, to um, back to verse 12, where it says... For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do, do evil. You see, God is for us. And he tells us that we do not have to be afraid when the world ostracizes us. And, you know, as an individual Christian, as a fellowship of the saints, we don't look for opposition. We're not trying to make enemies. We're not saying we're smarter than them. Meekness says, no, we just have a simple message to share because we're just like them. I was once a religious boy who thought I was getting to heaven by my church works, but someone faithfully defended and confirmed the gospel to me. And I came to know Christ as my Savior. God calls us to stand. 
for the truth of the gospel carefully and gently while, while we love and serve them along the way. It's a balance that the Lord Jesus had, that the Apostle Paul had. It's a balance he wants to accomplish in our lives as well. But one other aspect of the gospel work is are we participating? Are we going? You know, go and preach the gospel. Is that in our vision as we wake up each day? Our speaker, Carl Kirby, at Family Camp had an illustration. He, one message he gave us, some things he learned from an atheist. And this fellow who was a very, 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 you know, atheist on steroids, you might say, actually, very hostile to the things of God, had somebody hand him a New Testament and uh, in some measure shared Christ with him. And this man was so impressed and put upon because it was meek, it was gentle, it was humbly, humble. And he said this in regards to this person. He, he said he was a good man. He appreciated what he did, <coughs> even though he's so hostile towards Christianity. He said this, and I'm paraphrasing because I can't remember the word for word. I don't have the quote in front of me. But he says, if a person really believes there's a heaven and there's a hell, and that faith in Jesus Christ alone is the only way to reach heaven and escape hell, how much would they hate me in not proselytizing me? Whoa, that's heavy. So he said, this is an atheist. Recognize that this is really true. He saw the love of Christ through this man who stood for the defense and confirmation of the gospel in the face of this atheist. He was so impressed by the meekness and gentleness of Christ. He said, if this is really true, how many people hate me and not being willing to tell me? Interesting observation, powerful observation from an atheist. So we need to pray for the love of Christ to grip us, the love of Christ that God is seeking to form in us. The desire to defend and confirm the gospel is not simply to defend what we think is right. It's to defend the person who loved us, the person we're going to celebrate today. It is to proclaim this message, and that's what Jesus says at the Lord's table, for you proclaim his death till he comes. In closing, let's go over to Romans chapter 10 and just close with this thought this morning. I think we could all use this challenge, and I think when, when this atheist said this across the screen, I think we all shrunk in our chairs and wondered, how involved am I in the defense and confirmation of the gospel? Romans 10, verse 9, we have that wonderful message that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For with a heart one believes unto righteousness, God gives him his righteousness, with a mouth confession is made to salvation. For the scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. How then? Shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they be sent, are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the gospel of peace, who bring glad tidings of good things. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed our report? And Paul might have thought the same thing when he was sitting in prison. No one's responding well, at least not in this government direction. But faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. And that's what people need. That's what the defense and confirmation of the gospel is all about. It's allowing people the opportunity to hear the truth of God's word so that they can 
call on the name of the Lord and be saved, so they can put their trust in Jesus Christ as the one who died for them. And so God's objective, first touched on in this passage, touches on in Philippians 1-7 the reality of having beautiful feet. You know, that's, I'm not the first one to say that, but it is true. And God wants our feet to take us every day on, on a gospel mission, whether we're doing our dishes, doing our chores, tending to our jobs. God wants us to use our life redemptively, to go into every day with feet that are desired to bring people a me message that could save them and rescue them. And yes, it may bring opposition and persecution and ostracization, and, and you may be hated, but God says, don't be afraid. Preach it anyway, because there are those who will respond and come to know Christ. And so having beautiful feet this morning is really a reflection of our worship and praise and thanks for our Savior. You know, it's one of those disconnects that needs to be reconnected, that when we celebrate the Lord's table, we proclaim his death. When we partake of the elements, we're really saying it was my sins he died for. It's his blood was shed for me. That's what we're proclaiming. And it was sufficient for my salvation. And then Monday morning, we forget this is the message, the person of the message that we are privileged to proclaim. And may the Lord develop in each of us beautiful feet. Let's pray. Father, thank you for our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, and what a tremendous gift of love he has extended to us in giving up himself on the cross. But we're thankful as well, Father, you are the almighty God, and your power, you beat death, and you raise him from the dead so that we could have eternal life to look forward to a glorious future when there is no more tears and crying and sorrow. Father, you have great plans for us, and we all find those fulfilled in Christ. And Father, we're thankful along the way that you're working on us to make the person of Christ real in our lives. Father, it's a person that will reflect and enjoy for all eternity when, you, when this work is complete, when we're with the Lord. But it's a work you started today. You started in our lives, Father, to make us Christ-like. May we cooperate. Help us to have the love of Christ, the meekness of Christ, the compassion of Christ, but the boldness of Christ as well in a love for souls. Help us to have that right balance in our lives. And Father, now as we celebrate our Savior, remember our Savior, Father, may our hearts overflow with love and gratitude for our Savior, as we proclaim him as the one who loved us and died for us, may you be worshipped. And may our worship be sweet-smelling to you this morning. In Jesus' name.